Um, today, we're going to continue in our summer series, if you would. Um, just We're going to look into a few different uh, portions of Scripture from the book of Psalms. And so we're going to continue with that. We're going to be in Psalm 37, titled it, Rest, Don't Fret. Don't fret or do not fret is repeated a few times in this particular portion that we'll look at today. And I want to begin with this because this particular psalm is a psalm um, that's so, there's so much application. It makes sense when we stop long enough just to take a deep breath and think it through. Because see, the, the world you live in and the world I live in is, is full of contrasts. There is the environment we live in. So we have a contrast, you know, weather can change rapidly. It can be warm and cold and, you know, inclement and all different things. We know we have uh, the day-night experience, which is a contrast. We also know just not only the environment, but the, the human experience. You have seasons, moments, times where you, there's excitement. But there's also lethargy where you're just kind of like, meh. There's times married, widowed, time rich, times poor. There, there's, there's people that are happy. There's people that are sad. On any given day, there's someone being born and there's someone passing away on the same day. Such a range of contrasts. We have seasons of calm and we have seasons of unrest. And helping to, to, to recognize that helps kind of work through some things. Because sometimes when we experience the contrast, we, we think some, there's something cataclysmic or, or something controversial. And sometimes it's just, it's, it's just knowing that this is how things are in this world. Not only do we have those things mentioned, but on top of that, there are political contrasts. There's moral contrasts, ethical contrasts. We're around them every day. So how do we navigate this life without either going crazy we're cowering in the corner with all that's going on around us. And I think we can, we can see a few things here in Psalm 37. So let's pray. God, as we would approach your word, we believe that you are the author of life. You've given us hope. You've given us life. You have introduced us to yourself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You brought us to the knowledge of your truth. You've invited us into a relationship to receive your forgiveness. And as we've received that from you, that glorious gift of grace, by your work, we're born again, born of the Spirit. And I would pray, God, you would teach us even today how to walk in the Spirit, how to live in love, how to reflect your presence by the way we talk, by the way we carry ourselves. And so we would ask, God, for you to teach us your work for you to bring to light the things we need to see, for you to free us from some of the things we hold on to, perhaps it's habit, or maybe we have a pattern of thinking that we don't see. Holy Spirit, would you free us from anything that's a hindrance and lead us in your truth, God? We thank you for what you'll show us today. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So in Psalm 37, carrying with my opening um, topic or what I introduce of contrast, this psalm is as a psalm of contrast. It contrasts those who know and trust God 
with those who are in opposition to God. Those who are opposed to God are described in the Bible as evildoers or wicked. It's interesting because wicked does not have to be dressed in black and robbing people and breaking things. Wicked actually is in opposition to God, that which is opposed to God. Wickedness is expressed in many ways, but the core of it is selfishness, self-centeredness. When a person decides, I'll do things my way, I'll do it this way, they may not line it up, they may not be so direct in their thinking, but their actions, their expressions, their values become more about themselves than anything else. A denial that there is a God, or if they're willing to say there's obviously a creator, there's a design, there's an, uh, there's an evidence of, of creation around me, there must be a God, but I don't need to be bothered to be in opposition to God. The Bible describes that as, as actually evil, as, as wicked. Now, what we have here, what I love is that David is the author. No, no, he's not the author. He's the agent. He's the agent by which the author, God, brings forth truths of this world, truths of God, truths about God's character, about his actions. So David is inspired by God to record truth and reveal God's word. So it's cool because I think... I mean, you think that just the, the kindness and the empathy and the compassion of God to reveal his word that way, that he would pour his truth into his agents, his, his heart poured into the heart of man, brought forth by God's presence in that person to, to the hand of men to pen out what God's word is. It's really fascinating. Now, we know this particular psalm, based on verse 25, David is older in life. And so he's had a personal experience and an observation and a, and a deeper understanding about these truths that God will show to him and bring, through, bring forth through David as well. And so it's important that we remember God is not detached. He's not absent or unaware of what we go through. Actually, it's because he's present and that he is aware that we have his word. That's why he conveys it to us. So let's begin in Psalm 37. We're, gonna, we're actually going to read, look at a couple of the, one of the psalm, but we're going to focus on verses 1 through 11 today. We're going to read through it and then come back and kind of chew on it and, and uh, open it up a bit more. It begins in verse 1 with, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. 
but the meek shall inherit the earth and the, shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So let's just, as I mentioned, just kind of step right in verse one. Do not fret. Fret speaks of uh, uh, hot. Uh, it, it has an expression of, of fury or anger, angry, kindled, worked up. Do not get worked up because of evildoers. Nor be envious, you know, jealous, if you would, of the workers of iniquity. Well, who would be that way? Why would anybody get worked up because of evildoers? Well, when you see people become prosperous, you see people that are contrary to God and opposed to God. And, and it seems like they, they work hard and they do certain things, but they, they just, everything just seems to work out better for them. They, they have better cash flow. They have a better house. Their car doesn't break down like yours does. And the other things, you're just like, how, this just seems unfair. This doesn't seem quite the way that it should be. They seem to prosper. We see there in um, verse 2, or verse, yeah, verse 2, verse 2 speaks of they shall soon be cut down. They're, they're doing well, but they're going to soon be cut down, as it says, like the grass, as the and wither as the green herb. The picture with the herb is when it dries out, it's obvious. Uh, you could even take the idea of grass for us here. You remember here about roughly, guess, five weeks ago, you were driving to Boise and you were like, man, it is so lush and so green. Man, it's, it's, kind, it's kind of pretty the way the sun's setting on it. You didn't say that yesterday. Or the day before. It's, it's amazing how fast it went from green to just brown, raw fuel waiting for a, a spark. It changed so quickly. It happened that fast. And the, the picture is it's going to happen fast for people who are opposed to God too. We, we are reminded to keep eternity in view. Because when we're temporal, we start looking at the wrong things. And those things go away so quick. Let's consider, maybe this, I think the Bible can give us a better uh, picture or even a process, so to speak, of the thoughts, then I can say it. Let's go to Psalm 73. We'll return here to 37 just briefly. But in Psalm 73, we have a psalm of a man named Asaph. And he's just saying what God put on his heart, what he knew to be true. Here's what's interesting. You know, God's not fooled, or nor is he ignorant or unaware of our thoughts. Do you know that you have thoughts that do not honor God? Do you know that? Now, if you deny them, they won't be there. You can just pretend. <laughs> kind of like covering your eyes, and then obviously you can't see anything. We know that's not true. It's much better as a person, as an individual, knowing the God of creation knows you better than you know yourself, to just be honest with him. And look at what the psalmist says. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Great statement. Look where he's going. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. <laughs> Boy, isn't that so true? We don't want to admit it. But when you see somebody prosper, you see them, you know, even as they're immoral and they're, Im you just know some of the statements they've made, the things they've invested in, things they've done, whether they're just a local person or perhaps, you know, a popular person by way of media and entertainment. 
And you're like, it it disgusts you sometimes. It irritates us to see such lavish lifestyle rewarded. And it it can cause you to stumble. The psalmist is very honest here. I, I just about fell on my face. When I started seeing that, I couldn't reconcile it. I couldn't work it out. How they could prosper. And here, I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to live the way I should. And, and I'm, I'm struggling and getting stepped on by those who don't need what I'm scraping to try to have. Where there are no pains in their death, their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. There is present on this planet in this day, in this time, and we know some of them because of their popularity, their influence and position and their prosperity. We know some of them by name, not personally, but we know of their name. They mock God. They speak as if there is no God. They speak as if they can control all the the crops and the products and the governments and the people on the planet. There's very popular people as far as, you know, numerically, who really think it's important to reduce world population. You know what it means to reduce world population? Yeah, it's not complex. You got to remove a few, okay? Now, there's people that, and you look at some of these things that are happening, you don't have to, you don't have to be like some conspiracy theorist or whatever. You just got to be honest. There's some very wealthy people, very influential people that speak as if they are God. And they can spend and do and work and move however they want. And it's a fact. In this world, they can. And the psalmist is seeing this. You know, their pride's like a necklace. They boast in what their resources will do for them. They boast in how their influence and position can accomplish things for them. They move more than a heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. Like, yeah, whatever. But you know... It's kind of amazing when you look at this because the psalmist is working through this. He continues to talk about his, his observation and his heart until we get to verse 16 where he shares a little summary. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. I couldn't get a handle on it. It was too painful for me, he says, until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. He didn't say, then I understood the the equality. Then I understood how it's all going to work out. What he said is, then I had an eternal view. When I went to the sanctuary, when I went before God, representing the presence of God, when I laid it before the Lord, I was reminded that in this, this world will soon end. This, this isn't going to continue. Things are going to change, and there's going to be accountability. There's going to be consequences. There's going to be reality. I understood their end. Then, oh, was he different? See, it's very interesting that God has, by I think our human reasoning, and I think it's a real observation, he has a very patient 
a very um, gracious attitude towards wicked people. Can we agree? I mean, he provides for them even though they mock him. They reject him. Um, Many are wealthy and have abundance in this life. But their time will end as well. And then sadly, they will be forever separated from all good things. You see, like many things, God just deals with it differently than you would. I mean, let's face it. You, you, you have opportunity to, say, govern just a localized area because too much power, you'd go really crazy. So you're allowed to just a certain area. And you have the purse strings. You have the ability to bring poverty or prosperity. And some of those who you could distribute to call you a jerk. Say you're old-fashioned. Say you're non-existent. Pretend you don't care. Say all terrible, terrible things about you, even though you've shown yourself to be a good person. What are you going to do? I know what you're going to do. You're going to do what I'm going to do. They're going to starve till they get their attitude right. <laughs> Seriously, I'm not going to. I'm not going to benefit. I'm not going to reward them for being that way, because we're, we're we reason different. But it's the phenomenal patience, love, and grace of God that would allow prosperity in this life when this is the best their life will ever be. It's human logic that says, well, punish him now because that will not change them. See, there's something in the heart of man that is not driven by stuff alone. There's an element of selfishness that's got no correlation, no connection to poverty or prosperity. It's a prideful thing. And God knows every heart. So when you consider that, I I hope it stirs within us uh, a a kindness, an awareness, a realization that, yeah, some people are doing well until we consider their end. Now, a lot of people look at this life without a view of eternity. That's evidenced, not by just their words, but it's evidenced by how they live, Um, the empires they establish, the self-reliance they build on, what they invest into. See, they're okay with the idea that there is a God, but they're not interested in investing into eternity. This world is their world. Now, we know most of them are, I refer to as being opposed to God. But let's not be naive nor dishonest. That mindset is sadly true among professing Christians as well. They're willing to invest into their own thing at the expense of eternity. They're born again, but they're not going to invest and serve. And we live in a time where, as culture, we orient around our own preference and perception and, and, and wants more than we realize. And we have to recognize, I think, the Bible doesn't allow for ignorance concerning history. Can we agree with that? I know that sounds a little different, but it is history. It's God's history with humanity. You know, you can't say, well, I'm, you know, I'm just, I just live in the moment. Well, you have to be aware of history because it tells his story, the history of how God engaged with humanity, how he raised up a nation, how he showed grace to all humanity, and how he works. So we, the reason that's important is taking a broader view than just what's happening with you and I just right now. 
realizing we want to have more of an eternal view in the way we spend our time, the way we manage our resources, the way we live our lives. Because I don't want to slip into, I don't want to subtly slide over, I don't want to subconsciously find myself sitting over here with those who are the same concept, mindset, and thought of those who are opposed to God. Because I don't want to invest. I got other reasons why I don't have to, you know, do this or do that or be a part of that, you know. So let's continue on back in verse 3 of chapter 37, carrying what we just looked at, a mindset that's, I believe, evident and present at various points for every Christian. That is like, we see the injustice. We see the things going on. Now in verse 2, he's saying, listen, it's going to be cut down. This will change. In verse 3, what do you, how do you do? What do you do? Instead of, you know, getting all worked up over it, fretting, trust in the Lord and do good. Instead of worry and envy, the instruction is for you and I to make a choice to trust and do good. Over the years, I've had the, the blessing and the opportunity to, to share God's truth and, you know, from a, what we call a pulpit like this or, you know, sometimes one-on-one in, in type of a relational building and discipleship type scenarios. And, and sometimes it's, you know, like with a husband and wife and going over some of the challenges of, of a marriage per se. And over the years, I've noticed one thing, very rare is it that people do not know what to do? In most of those conversations, in most of that engagement, as you kind of talk through the details that drove the meeting and kind of settled you together, the person who's sharing some of the stresses and challenges realizes what they know they should do. The question is, will they do it? See, it's not that we don't know. I mean, just think about it. If you slow down and get away from, if I stop making excuses for myself and patting myself on my back with my little pity party, and I just stop, I just stop that, and I think about, like, you know, what, what would be the right thing to do here? Rare is it that I go, I have no clue. Frequent is it, like, I don't want to do that. That's going to hurt. That's going to be difficult. I don't know how to do that. But see, trust in the Lord and do good. There's an element of choosing also. Hey, Lord, you show me and now give me the strength that I can do it, that we will be able to do it. Trust in the Lord and do good. With relationships, the pressures and the injustices in our world, learning to trust him and to do good, to dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. The so-called dwell, we know from the New Testament, John 15, speaks of to abide, to reside, to, to settle down. So it reminds us, you know, the, the word to, from the psalmist, or the word to you and I, is to, you know, to, to, to dwell. It literally is, in totality, is speaking of as a resident alien, a person from another land, a child of the king, be about the king's business in a foreign land. Know who you are as a Christian in a world that is ungodly and in most ways it just has no concern for the one you love, Jesus Christ. In that world, but not of that world. You're not hostile towards the world, but you're aware of the world that you're in. You're about the king's business. Dwell with the knowledge. Okay, I'm about the Lord's business. 
And how that's described or how that's expressed is unique and specific in each one of our lives and in each season of our lives. But to dwell, dwell in the land, be aware of who, where you are, dwell in the land, and feed on his faithfulness. To graze, to feed, it really is conveying to you and I. Know where your nourishment comes from. So let's apply it physically and think through that picture, that similitude. Can, would we say that everything we eat is nutritional? I was afraid somebody would say yes. (laughs) You know, there's things that we consume that have, they have nothing to do with nutrition. They have everything to do with pleasure, with taste. Your taste buds are the most pathetic liars you know. (laughs) Seriously. They'll convince you, have another piece of candy, another cookie. Take some flour, mix it with sugar, Add some milk, stir it up, tear it into little pieces, and throw it in a big boiling bucket of grease. And then eat it. It'll be awesome. And if it's not awesome, put more sugar on it. We call them donuts, if you don't know that. I don't know who come up with this idea originally. Like, let's, we should soak this in grease. We should burn this in oil and eat it. But guess what? We eat things that are non-nutritional. And I, I'm not... I'm not, well, you get it. I'm not out to lunch, so to speak. Not the best example. But anyway, my point is, I don't go to a Twinkie package for nutrition. It's not my nourishment. I may make a mistake. I may regret it. The older you get, the more you will notice your intake affects your intestines. Your pleasure from the taste buds are not so pleasurable for the next few hours. And we start realizing, wait a minute, that's not for nourishment. Feed on his faithfulness. The parallel, the picture would be, don't feed on your faithfulness. That's not even close to a Twinkie. Your faithfulness will not carry you through. If your ability to go to church enough, to serve enough, to give enough, if that defines your relationship with God, if that's your measure, it's of no nutritional value to your spiritual life. But if you can recognize, I want to feed on his faithfulness. I want to learn to see his view. I want to know things from his perspective. I want to be about his business in his strength. And I want to see his faithfulness. The world around you is constantly speaking about the, the non-existence of God or a false narrative about the, the very nature of God. Just, it's constant. It's continually through the senses on top of the fact that your spirit and your body are at enmity against one another. So in other words, they're, they're kind of in conflict all the time. The senses of this body are always kind of making their voice known. So with that in mind, we know there's this constant conflict. And we have to choose. We, it's important that we say, you know what, I, I'm going I'm to feed on his faithfulness. I'm going to remind myself every day Every opportunity I can, without going wacko, but every chance, I want to remind myself of the faithfulness of God. Because when we feed on his faithfulness, we graze, we take hold of it, we're nourished spiritually because we're taking our mind off of our situation, off of the pressures, off of the injustice, and we're just saying, but God, you are good. You are faithful. Even when I'm faithless, you remain faithful because you just, you can't stop being yourself. 
feeding on his faithfulness. Now, there is somewhat of a progression. I don't think it's a required order, but we can see in simplicity, you know, as we, we, we don't fret, we then choose to trust in the Lord and react to that knowledge, do good. We dwell in the land with the knowledge of who we are. We're feeding on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. It speaks of to be happy about your walking with the Lord, choosing to take that perspective. But it also speaks of to be soft, to be pliable. So to be happy, to be, as it was, speaks here, delight yourself in the Lord, is to be pliable. As a vessel that's not yet been sent to the kiln, but still be informed by the master, the vessel can be shaped for different purposes. It can be formed. It's pliable. And it's kind of a picture of what he's saying. Let, let the potter continue to form and shape you, no matter what season you're in. As a young Christian, you may be going, okay, I'm just still trying to figure this out. He'll shape you. As someone who's been around for years, maybe Christian for decades, likewise, be pliable in his hands. Don't become so rigid that you become immovable or so stubborn that you're qualified to be a stiff neck. You see what I'm saying? We want to make sure, okay, Lord, maybe pliable, because when we delight ourselves, we're pliable, he shall give you the desires of your heart. Sadly, in contemporary teaching and, and probably even in previous generations, this verse has been masterfully manipulated and used as terrible deception. As long as you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you everything you desire. That is not what it says. It literally is conveying to you and me as we look at this. He'll give you the desires, the requests of your heart. Because quite honestly, when we're not fretting, we're not envious of those and jealous of those around us. When we're realizing and learning how to trust God and live with the action of trust. When we're dwelling in the land because we know who we are. When we're feeding on his faithfulness. When we're pliable in his hands. We now see the deeper desires of our heart. The greater desires. All those others, you know, like were, were surface things. So the, the, the teaching that says in the title or the thought of prosperity, that as long as you have, you know, delight in the Lord, he is now obligated to give you anything you want. And you are obligated, he is obligated to give to you that new BMW. Because you love him so much and you're so concerned about him, you know, his work in your life. And because you delight in being pliable, he now has to give you whatever you say. That's a summary and it's a touch sarcastic, but it's strangely accurate. That's what's taught. It is a lie from the pit of hell. Seriously. Because what we're taught here as we are really drawn to him... We have different desires. I have different desires. You have different desires now that you didn't have before you were born again. When you were born again, you, you have these new desires. And suddenly you're, you're interested in things and you want to see things that you never even cared about before. Before being a Christian, my concern primarily was me. Was where I could go fishing. When I could ride my dirt bike. I grew up, you know, racing. That was our family thing. We, we raced motocross. And so that's just what you did. And when, the, when the season was there, you did it every weekend. And so that was my life pattern. As an adult, I, I kind of held on to some of those selfish thoughts, you know. And so 
Kim and I are married, and then I become a Christian, and, and I'm, I'm learning to see things differently. I have a different desire. I still like riding dirt bikes to this day. I still like going fishing. I still like doing these other things, but they're not the drive. They're not the main desire. The main desire has shifted and, and wanting to see my children grow and wanting to learn how to love my wife and, and experience such a joy inside, <coughs> excuse me, when those things are expressed. That's what it's talking about here. We delight ourselves in the Lord. We experience desires in this life that only he can provide, that only he can bring about. We'll experience joy and happiness and things that are just, they're just, there's no comparison to them. All the things I pursued, all the adrenaline, all the different things of the senses that I pursued, not one of them compares to being used by God to pray privately. I prayed with my brother as we were coming back from a retreat. He prayed to receive Christ in a, in, in a 1971 Chevy Blazer. And I don't think it was because it was so cold. It could have been, but I mean, it sure brought about his conversion if it was. Just kidding. He, he, there's nothing that, comp- I get goosebumps just telling you about that. I, I didn't save him, but I had a desire to see him and to know what I know, to know God as I know God and, and the love of Jesus Christ. And that desire was manifested. And to be able to be used by God to accomplish his eternal work in someone's life and snatch them from the grip of hell and place them into his glorious light. And you know you were a part of it. That's a desire you didn't generate. It's a result of regeneration. It's something that he's implanted within you and it's awesome. Let's continue on as it says, you know, now verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. So here we would apply this is that you're born again, you're learning to walk with the Lord, but it takes commitment as well. In other words, it speaks of to roll off onto, to, to hand your way to him, to just hand off to him. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Learning to trust. It's repeated. Basically, he's saying, don't fret. He's going to bring it to pass. Verse 6, he, notice this, he shall bring forth righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. He said it also in verse 5. We've seen see it three times. He will bring these things about. He'll bring it to pass. He will do this. Commit your way to him. And I want to say to you that that's an ongoing thing that happens every day with every Christian. There's some new thing in your mind, a greater realization or a deeper understanding about you and his forgiveness and his grace and his presence, where he prompts you to hand this off to me. Let me handle this for you. Let me walk you through. Let me teach you through this adversity. Let me, let me train you through this trial so you'll see my, my grace and my presence in a greater way. And, and sometimes we're smart and we hand it off to him and other times we we, we learn uh, by not handing it off. We have to go through it again. Interesting in verse 6. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. I hope you understand what's being said there is your righteousness and your justice are actually his attributes shining through you. That's his presence. And so these things that you see, how you handle it differently and how you work through things differently, that's the presence of God 
shining forth through you where you kind of get the credit for the work he's doing. And you should hopefully notice it. Paul said to Timothy, you know, follow me as I follow the Lord. He, he encouraged people. He didn't boast, but he said, as you see the Lord change in my life, learn from that as well. Embrace that and be willing to receive that. So I want to encourage you to let that righteousness, as he describes it, the righteousness and the justice comes only through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. It shines forth through us as we open our heart to him more and more. Rest in the Lord, verse 7, and wait patiently for him. Rest, it speaks of stillness, of calming, uh, of a silence, actually. Just, just as it says in Psalm 46.10, to be still and know that he is God. So resting is a challenge, to be silent, to be still. Um, I believe rest requires that you stop talking about your view and learn to see from his view. Uh, I will probe in a very um, personal way to each of you, I guess. No one wants to know your political view. Did he say that? You've already shared it. People know it. It's okay. It's your view. But sometimes we need to stop speaking our view and consider, is that actually his view? I can say this confidently, and I believe very accurately. When you look at the politics that we know them now, neither position, if you just take the left and the right and consider the swing of the pendulum, there's not a view that when people hear it go, Wow, that sounds a lot like Jesus. (laughs) Correct? Nobody. So there's a point you have to stop and go, why do I embrace what the popular opinion is because I'm conservative or liberal? Oh, shut up. Seriously, just zip it for a bit and think through what's what's God's view on this? Because I believe whether sometimes doctrinally, sometimes politics, sometimes hot topic issues, We need to learn his view and stop repeating someone else's. Stop repeating what the the push is and what the common thing is. You know, Christians are lazy so often. We don't want to research. We just want to know what's popular and then we'll take our position when we should research. We should really know some things that we can know. We live in the information age in the greatest way. Never in human history has there been such a a resource of information available to individuals, ever. But information doesn't mean knowledge. You can have a ton of information, and you do. But you have to assimilate that, sort that, work through that, and come up with knowledge based on what your topic or point of study or observation is. And once you've sorted through all this, and you have knowledge then knowledge has to be put into practice in order for it to be wisdom. See, if you have knowledge, but you don't put it into practice, that's foolish. But as you assimilate information, you bring it to here, and even describing that, aren't you getting tired? I mean, it's not easy, but we have, seriously, we have to stop long enough to go, wait a minute, what is Jesus' view on this? Not in a fuzzy, you know, bumper sticker mentality, but just thinking, really, where's the Lord on this? 
how, how do I, what position should I hold? What should I promote? Because some of you need to promote, not so, well, yeah, yeah. Speak more loudly about what you hold dearly. There's tremendous injustice taking place in our military, in our government, in people's lives right now. And I believe there should be a voice. But it should be not a repeated voice that fits into some political category, but a personal conviction that's rooted in the word of God, confident that Jesus has given you revelation and insight. And then you communicate it the way he did. He didn't communicate it with the intention of clobbering somebody. He conveyed so clearly to Roman oppressors the grace of God, the love of God, the hope of God. All right, first service didn't get that rant. So you guys are benefiting. So anyway, I think I got part of it. But Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Let me just say it this way. Put the brakes on. Getting mad generates an action. It's actually called wrath. Overheating, burning is what that refers to. It only causes harm. So what is the thing your wrath produces? Harm. Consider James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Think of your best expression of stupid. Your best wrathful release. No one heard that and go, wow, he's a lot like Jesus. <laughs> right? It does not produce that type of a spiritual, a healthy response. Parents, guys, remember this. Unloading on the kids doesn't make them go, daddy loves Jesus. What's it do? It produces what? It produces it does not produce the righteousness of God. So we have to be real and say, wait a minute, I don't want to, I want to put the brakes on here as we look here in Psalm 37. I want to put the brakes on this. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. It only causes harm. Our wrath reveals that we are temporally minded more than eternally minded. And it's a deep conviction for some of us to remind us, hey, wait a minute. This is not the way it should be done. Verse 9, we see evildoers will be cut off, as we spoke of. And those of you who have journeyed with us for the last, well, we spent a few months, of course, in the book of Revelation, and we've really seen the, the end times chronology, and we see what God has declared and made known to be true, that those who choose to live eternity without him will have what they've requested. Those who demand that they do not have to be with God, they don't want to know God, they will spend eternity separated from the goodness of God. And it's basically telling us that that day is coming when all this turmoil that you know, when the greed around us, when the selfishness and the oppression, is, it just seems to flourish. And it, I think it will seem to increase. I think it will significantly increase in, in the months that come. But that will come to an end. There is a time it'll be done. Verse 10, once again, a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you'll look and there will be no more. It's going to come to an end. In view of eternity, the Bible tells you and me, this life is merely a vapor. 
Think about early in the morning, fall, you know, maybe wintertime. You go outside, you breathe, and you see this, this breath of life. You see it come forth. But then it dissipates. It's only for that moment that you actually see it. And God uses that, in a sense, as a picture to say it's this, this life in view of eternity is so minute, so minor, but so important. It's, it's like a vapor. It's, just, it's gone. It's here and gone. So make sure his, his, the one thing that we have to resolve in this life is who Jesus Christ is. We have to resolve in our own makeup, in our own being, we have to resolve who we say he is. Is he just another religious teacher? Is the Bible just a, one of a collection of religious books? Or is the truth willing to be received? The truth of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, do we receive it? Do we agree with him that he is God? Do we agree that we need his forgiveness? Do we declare our, our, our need for him? Do we humble ourselves before him? The Bible speaks of repent, which means just to turn from our ways and turn to him. Are we born again? This is one thing we've got to resolve in this life. This life is just so minute, so short in comparison. So I want to just say in summary of this whole thing as the worship team comes back up, a couple things. Renew your mind. Change the way you view the contrasts in this life. You may be doing really good and doing well, but you see evil and hardship. And you may want to ignore it. But if you're in evil and hardship, and that's the predominant, then you are jealous and longing for prosperity and goodness. And you want to change the way you view that. You want to take his view. Be changed, I would say, by the presence of God. Because as we started, and as Greg shared a new song, speaking of, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's always with us. And that's more than just an intellectual thought. That's a knowable reality. It's so important. If you'd stand with me, we're going to close our time with 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I love it because it, you know, it's, it closes out the letter there in 2 Corinthians and it contains some relational encouragement, but a reminder as well. And so I want to read that verse and then we'll go into prayer and and then we'll close our time together with a song of worship together. It reads in 2 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God, thank you for your presence, for your love. Thank you for your word today. I pray, God, that as we would go about whatever's before us this afternoon and this evening and whatever time we have, Lord, that we would take and chew upon what you've revealed, that we would be people putting our trust in you, our hope in you, born again because of what your grace brought to us, that forgiveness, the new life, you residing within us, leading us and directing us. God, bring about the change as you see fit. May we be pliable and soft in your hands. May you be glorified 
in all that we say and all that we do. Our faith is in you, Jesus. Everyone said, amen, amen. Let's worship by music.